case file number 2.2, Cracking Enigma. Observed by Agent Crenshaw. Subject 1, alias Hackalope. Subject has a history of working in computer security for over 20 years. He has been observed to several Fortune 500 companies and federal agencies during that period. He has been amassing historical information related to espionage and covert action as well as corporate malfeasance. Subject 2, alias Emir. Subject has a history of working in computer security for the last 10 years. He has been observed at NASA facilities regularly. We've also tracked him to the gym where he seems to be bodybuilding. We are amassing evidence to charge him with felony for skipping leg day and curls on the squat rack. Subjects are suspected of having information related to hacking the Gibson. Uh, the accounting subject of the Gibson's working really hard. I think we got a hacker. So, do you know a lot about like World War II history, like specifically uh, encryption? A little bit. Uh, I saw the uh, Benedict Cumberbatch movie, and I and I knew a thing or two. I've actually seen a couple in person of the Enigma machines in person. But that's pretty awesome. I want to actually go see one at some point. I know that I saw, I think, a total of three at the National Cryptographic Museum, uh, which is mm-hmm. up n- in f- near Fort Meade, where no such agency is, or uh, NSA is. Right. Um, yeah, next time I'm back in Maryland, I'll have to check it out. But yeah, like, you know, uh, we'll be talking actually about the, who Benedict Cumberbatch played in that movie, uh, you know, a man named Alan Turing. Because yes. um, today's episode is all about Bletchley Park and um, their efforts on trying to decode the Enigma machines back in World War II to, you know, figure out what the hell the Germans were doing. The apex of pre-digital cryptography. Yes, yes, exactly. And like the world's uh, first computer, basically, mm-hmm. programmable computer. So it was all, uh, I want to say it was called Project Ultra, but like most of the stuff I read was just referred to as Ultra. This all took place at Bletchley Park. It was just an English uh, country house and estate in Buckinghamshire, uh, which kind of became the epicenter for all this code breaking during World War II and had uh, all these people there. According to historians, the intelligence that they produced from this code breaking shortened the war by a good two to four years. And without it, they're not sure the war would have actually um, ended in our favor. So pretty significant. That's a really big claim, considering that at this point, we know that that uh, that Germany was not spending a lot of its resources very efficiently. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, so, I mean, that's that's an amazing claim when you think about it, when you think about it in, in that context. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Some notable members of the team were Alan Turing, uh, Gordon uh, Velkman. Uh, Hugh Alexander, Bill Tutt, and Stuart Milner Berry. There's tons of articles on kind of like the unspoken um, people or like the quote unquote hidden figures. Like, you know, there was a, a massive group of women who uh, contributed to all of this mm-hmm. and who had to sign kind of like NDAs and everything because it was, you know, top, top secret. Yeah, yeah. And when the information started coming out about Alan Turing and all the stuff, they were kind of like put on the back burner, but they contributed just a ton to this yeah. uh, entire process as well. Yeah, that's that's a thing that we that we've all I think learned or had made visible to us in fairly recent years is, I mean, computer used to be referred to the people that did the calculations and mm-hmm. an awful lot that was considered a good job for women at the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Hidden Figures movie was pretty amazing to watch. Yeah, um, and if you look around, it's like that. That was not a an aberration. That uh, teams of women. Uh, doing calculations uh, of all kinds from, you know, artillery tables to 
this kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Man, just were like working in the factories and all that mm-hmm. during World War II. So uh, that this team here at uh, Bletchley Park um, and others devised automatic machinery to help with the decryption, culminating in the development of the Colossus, which, like I said, was the um, first programmable computer. Um, it's often said mistakenly that Turing helped uh, design this for cracking the Enigma, that being the Colossus. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, um, that's actually called the bomb that he did. Okay. Uh, the Colossus was developed by uh, another guy. We'll get into that too. Okay. The bomb was developed from a device known as the Bomba. It's a Polish device designed by uh, Marian Rajewski, who had been uh, breaking Enigma messages for the previous seven years using this in earlier machines. It seems like a pretty big downfall for that machine to, to have been incorporated into uh, the Mario video games. <laughs> All the little bombas. Uh, so Alan Turing produced the initial design in 1939 at Bletchley uh, with an important refinement devised in 1940 by Gordon uh, Velkman. The engineering, design, and construction was the work of Harold Keane of the British Tabulating Machine Company. Okay. And the very first one was codenamed Victory and installed in March of 1940. The second version, which was incorporated, which incorporated uh, Velkman's uh, new design, was working by August 1940. So I assume that this was all electromechanical machinery, and it, there wasn't mm-hmm. even any vacuum tubes or, or or anything like a straight circuitry about it. Yeah, yeah. The, the Bamba was uh, like straight up, uh, yeah, like mechanical. The Colossus itself, though, actually used vacuum tubes. Oh wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean that that was right around the time of the the first uh, calculator, big computer that we had built um, was ENIAC, and that was for um, or ENIAC, depending on who you ask. Um, the acronym is the same, um, mm-hmm. but but uh, that was for calculating artillery tables actually, um, and that used vacuum tubes. So so it's so we're we're right on that cusp because yeah yeah the one thing I. I do know about the Enigma machine is that it was an electromechanical machine yeah, yeah. and not a digital system that used i mean and we're still 20 years or so before the transistor or nearly 20 years yeah exactly so the the bomb was designed to discover some of the daily settings of the Enigma machine uh, on various german networks specifically the set of rotors in use and their position in the machine mm-hmm. the rotor core start positions for the message which were the message key and one of the wirings of the plug board um, at the peak they were reading approximately 4,000 messages per day so the uh, Luftwaffe uh, messages were the first to be read in any quantity. The German Navy had much tighter procedures and it, you basically had to capture of, uh, some of the code books in order to break any of it. Oh, wow. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll get into like some of the more details on there, but like the difference between the Luftwaffe uh, machines and the Navy is pretty uh, vast. Well, I, it, one of the universal truths of crypto security is key management and procedures is where you attack a crypto system, not necessarily at the algorithm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So in 1942, the German Navy introduced the four rotor Enigma machine uh, for communication with the Atlantic U-boats. This traffic became unreadable for 10 months after they had incorporated this. Wow. Britain produced modified bombs, uh, but it was actually the success of the U.S. Navy bomb Uh, That was the main source of reading these messages from the version of the Enigma for the rest of the war. So we kind of made our own versions of the bomb. Like the Army made one, our U.S. Navy made one, you know, other countries are making their own too. And just kind of like, you know, sharing it among the allies. Mm -hmm. So most German messages decrypted at Bletchley were produced by the Enigma cipher machines, but an important minority were produced by the complicated uh, 12-rotor Lorenz SZ42 online teleprinter cipher machine. 
I never heard of that one. Yeah, so these messages were codenamed uh, Tuni, and the Tuni networks were used for high-level messages between German high command and uh, field commanders. So with the help of German operator errors, the cryptanalysis worked out the logical structure of the machine, despite not knowing its physical form. Mm -hmm. And this is where the, the clauses came into play. Um, this device used vacuum tubes to perform Boolean and counting operations. Uh, that was programmed via switches and plugs instead of like an actual stored program on the device. Mm -hmm. uh, it's still regarded as the world's first programmable electric uh, digital computer. Well, frankly, the very first PDP machines uh, from digital equipment were programmed in a not very dissimilar way. So I guess that's not too much of a surprise to me. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the Colossus was actually, it was, this was designed by uh, Tommy Flowers. And the first prototype was working in operation by February uh, 5th of 1944. The Mark II Colossus, which enhances, uh, had a bunch of different enhancements, was working on the morning of June 1st. Uh, just in time for D-Day, actually. So that was like a, a major uh, benefit to being able to read some of these um, high command messages and decipher them. Wow. I didn't even realize that that that, that probably impacted uh, Operation Overlord. And we might have known things about their distribution of, uh, of defenses mm -hmm. that we might not, well, that we wouldn't have otherwise known had the operation happened six months, or six months earlier. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's, there's so much like stuff that just went in and also just like the randomness, like, um, you know, I've always heard the tale of, you know, Hitler was obviously a uh, kind of a meth fiend and, you know, loved his, uh, loved his stuff. So like he had been on a bender, I think the night before, <laughs> because, because he wanted to have like an, you know, an iron grip on everything his army did. They were so scared of like doing any, any procedures or any movements without his, his knowledge and his like, you know, his go. So they, they, they knew we were coming. Um, you know, for D-Day and they want, like, they could have put up a much more, um, much more of a defense against us, but Hitler was sleeping. <laughs> and so by the time he woke up, we had already kind of gained the upper hand and gotten a foothold. Single point of failure. Yeah, exactly. All this stuff is so bizarre and interesting. So uh, Flowers then produced one Colossus a month for the rest of the war, uh, making a total of 10 with an 11th that was part built before the war ended which is just insane that he was like churning this thing out every month. Yeah. This is the same, was it the same model or is it incrementally improving? Incrementally like improving every single. Yeah. That's amazing. Like just the work to put in to, to reproduce that much hand fitted stuff of, of something that nobody else has ever made. Yeah, 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 exactly. And then improving on top of it, like yeah, on that kind of crash basis. Yeah. It's insane what these guys were doing. So the, uh, the Enigma machine itself is just an electro-mechanical uh, rotor machine used for encryption decryption, uh, developed in the 1920s by Germany. It repeated, repeatedly changes of the electric, electrical pathway from the keyboard to the lamp board, uh, implemented a uh, polyalphabetic substitution cipher. Mm -hmm. The scrambler in this contains rotors with 26 electrical contacts on each side, whose wiring diverts the current to a different position on the two sides. So when a key is pressed on the keyboard, uh, the electric current flows through an entry drum at the right-hand end of the uh, scrambler, then through a set of rotors to a reflecting drum, which turns it back through the rotors and entry drum and out to illuminate one of the lamps on the lamp board. Yeah, so just like a, a continuous block cipher in modern digital cryptography, each thing you do changes the the encryption of, the, of successive uh, parts of the message. Mm -hmm. 
if you look at all, at a lot of electrical mechanical stuff, even a lot of stuff that we used in in that America used in its phone system up until even the nineties, it's just amazing what people were able to accomplish with you know wires and wires and cogs. Yeah, yeah, it, it was insane. Kind of like reading some of this stuff, and I'm just like, like, man, I can't even grasp my head around like how some of this was built, let alone like you know way back then or like 1920s when they developed this entire thing like it's insane so at each key depression the right hand or fast rotor advances one position which causes the uh, encipherment to change like you were saying in addition once per rotation the right hand rotor causes the middle rotor to advance the middle rotor similarly uses the left hand or slow rotor to advance each rotor's position is indicated by a letter of the alphabet showing through a window uh, the Enigma operator rotates the wheel by hand to set the start position for enciphering and deciphering the message. The three-letter sequence indicating the start position of the rotors is the message key, and there are uh, 26 to the third or 17,576 different message keys and different positions of the uh, set of rotors. And then by opening the lid of the machine and releasing compression bar, the set of three rotors on their spindle can be removed from the machine, and their sequence, called the wheel order, uh, allegedly Park uh, altered, multiplying 17,576 by the six possible wheel orders gives you 105,456 different ways the scrambler can actually be set up. With that set of rotors, um, mm-hmm. I believe that part of the problem, and you may get to this, was the fact that we didn't have a captured set of rotors. And if they sent out a new set of rotors, we would have been boned. Yeah, yeah. We, we would have had to refigure things out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> So yeah, like although 105,456 is a pretty large number, uh, doesn't guarantee security. You know, you can always just brute force that. Mm-hmm. Especially with computers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Poles developed card catalogs so they could easily uh, find rotor positions, and Britain built the uh, Eins catalog. Eins just being, you know, the German word for one. Mm-hmm. So less intrusive mes- methods were also possible. Uh, if all message traffic for the day used the same rotor starting position then the frequency frequency analysis of each position could recover polyalphabetic substitutions. Uh, if different starting positions were used, then overlapping portions of the message could be found using the index of coincidence. Okay. So I I started to imagine how that known like because that's that's a um frequency analysis and then you start and then you're working from known text. Um, yeah. Of how they're of how they were starting to attack that because each message would start with the same key. And if they all started with a similar preamble, then you would have the same ciphertext on the message and you could, and um, figuring out from there gives you something to work from to, to start working out the rotor positions, especially if you know the combination of how the, um, of how the rotors advance. Yeah, yeah. So I didn't know, um what the index of coincidence actually was. So I just mm-hmm. grabbed a little blurb here for people that are interested. Um, in cryptography, coincidence counting uh, is a technique invented by William F. Friedman of putting two texts side by side and counting the number of times that identical letters appear to the same position in both texts. This count either as a ratio of the total or normalized by dividing by the ex- expected count for a random source model is known as the index of coincidence or IC for short. Uh, because letters in natural language are not distributed evenly, the IC is higher for such text than it would be for uniform random text strings. Uh, what makes the IC especially useful is the fact that its value does not change if both texts are scrambled by the same uh, single alphabet substitution cipher, mm-hmm. uh, allowing cryptanalysts to quickly detect that form of encryption. 
many major powers uh, could break the Enigma traffic if they knew the rotor wiring. Mm -hmm. And Germany knew, you know, the Enigma was weak to this. In 1930, the German army introduced additional security feature, a plug board that further scrambled the letters. The Enigma encryption self-inverse function, meaning that it substitutes letters uh, reciprocally. Uh, if A is transformed into R, then R gets transformed into A, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. The plug board transformation maintained the self-inverse quality, but the plug board writing, unlike the rotor positions, does not change during the encryption. This regularity was exploited by Velkman's diagonal board enhancement to the bomb, which vastly increased its efficiency. So that was the, the big improvement that he um, added there. Yeah. The, yeah. So the plug board basically introduced a one, let's say, very slow rotor that changed at most per message. Mm -hmm. So it just it essentially added another another character multiplier of randomness, but not any more than that. Yeah. So with uh, six plug leads in use, mm -hmm. there were a hundred billion, uh, three hundred ninety one million. 791,000 uh, possible ways of setting up the plug board. An important feature of the machine and its Achilles heel, though, was that the uh, reflector in the scrambler prevented a letter from being enciphered as itself. Mm. So by late 1941, Germany was uh, seeing a turn in the Battle of the Atlantic, which combined with intelligence reports led Carl uh, Donitz to be convinced the Allies were able to read his communications. So that's when the fourth rotor started uh, coming into play in the ending machine. Mm -hmm. It was added to the German Navy Enigmas used for U-boat comms. Uh, this was dubbed the Triton system, and it was also compatible with the three rotor machines. Um, swap them out if you needed to. The new Enigma allowed for more successful attacks against Allied shipping by German U-boats. So, like you know, <laughs> this was a, a good turning point for Germany. Um, you know, they started kind of coming back, sinking just a crap ton of our ships to the point where we started deploying convoy systems just for our ships. And this is also when we started blacking out the coastal cities mm -hmm. so that U-boats couldn't see the silhouette of the ships as they left the coast. Oh, I didn't know about that. But um, it occurs to me, I, one of the things that they brought up in the movie, the, the, the Benedict Cumberbatch movie, gosh, I don't even remember the name. I should remember the name of it, but I don't. Um, but they were saying that they were only using, that they were trying to, to uh, intervene using a, a statistical model that made sure that they weren't getting too lucky mm, yeah yeah i mean it makes sense like you don't want to decipher literally everything because well you don't want to act on literally everything at, at mm -hmm, least yeah, yeah. but i wonder if whether that's apocryphal entirely or if they only started doing that after they saw the fourth rotor intervention yeah or if this guy just had a gut feeling that in spite of all, in spite of the attempts to use the statistical uh, model to to not intervene too often, he still had the gut feeling to change the cipher. Yeah, yeah, it could be. Yeah, it'd be very like interesting. But yeah, yeah, like you don't want to, you know, tip your hat too early, and especially like you know, yeah, nineteen forty one. So yeah, like the good turning point, like in the war at that point, like there, you know. So yeah, I, they had gone like just full blown and started encrypting even more. Like who knows? Yeah. Or, or they may, or they may have swapped out because they had learned over time what the what the weaknesses of the uh, of the Enigma machine were. They could have probably they could have wholesale reworked the system mm -hmm. and gotten out brand new machines, or had a more regular ship out of of new uh, of new rotors. Or they could have taken other interventions to more aggressively intervene if they thought they were completely blown. 
it's very cool to like just read back of like all the random ops we also used to do in World War II, like mm-hmm. the uh, the one where we suited up a dead body and yeah. washed it ashore. Like there was one where we just had a bunch of balloon vehicles, so that their planes looking down saw like you know massive Allied like caravans going across, but it was just all like a bunch of inflatable vehicles and whatnot. That, yes, that was a that was a very important psyop. So is that was that. Um... There were a bunch of inflatable tanks and mm-hmm. and stuff that represented a a complete division of artists and visual effects people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's crazy how much went into it. And then, like, also just like the random, yeah, you know, kind of a, a tangent. But I'm reading a book called The Last Battle, which mm-hmm. is uh, based around uh, Schloss Itter, um, which is in Austria. It's a castle, but it housed a bunch of like French VIPs. And uh, during the end of the war, you know, obviously, like, a lot of the German higher-ups just kind of were like, well, I'm done, and just kind of, like, yeah, fled. So this castle was surrounded by um, a lot of, like, the Luftwaffe and SS troops and everything like that who were still very loyal to Hitler, even though he had shot himself. <laughs> and, like, you know, they were, you know, surrounding this castle, and the American troops had just started pushing through the Austrian um, mountainside and got wind of this, so they were going to launch a uh, rescue mission. And the way they actually caught wind of this was um, both the cook, who was this Czechoslovakian dude at the castle, was sent out by the French VIPs and miraculously made his way through all these like SS uh, posts and everything like that. Basically, like he rode his bike and just said that he was like going to find tools for the um, the uh, the Nazi officer back at the castle, and they just kind of let him through. <laughs> and then at the same time, like he. I think he met up with American forces, but another guy went out and actually met up with uh, German forces because there was an SS officer who was sympathetic uh, to them. And like, you know, he, like if you look at pictures, like he looks like a straight up, like, you know, SS evil villain from a movie or something like that. But like, he was a good dude and uh, he actually gave his life for like trying to save these these French uh, VIPs. Wow. And so this this was like the the one time it, or maybe not the one time, but like the most well-known time that Americans and Germans both teamed up together to fight Nazis <laughs> in World War II. Oh, I mean, I know that towards the end, there was a lot of people who were looking out for number one. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of what was claimed during Operation Paperclip and uh, the race for German science uh, between Russia and the Allied side, a lot of things that were captured were because folks were, hey, I uh, like, the entire Pinamunda archive. Pinamunda was the base where they developed and launched the V2s from mm-hmm. what they called the A4. Um, the entire archive of all of their rocket research, they made sure to squirrel away so that they could give it to the allies as kind of a, yeah, yeah. hey, um, we're totally viable. Yeah, yeah. And uh, for anyone that wants like a fun way to learn history, uh, there's a band called Sabaton, which is actually where I learned of this entire event because all of their songs are based on like different battles throughout history okay the all historical events like they're none of them are like fictional songs so like i'll just listen to a song and be like wait wait a second this sounds kind of interesting and then look it up and be like whoa that's got a lot of crazy history to it you know what uh, i i will take i will take your recommendation this isn't something that we've talked about before off, off of the podcast <laughs> yeah yeah very 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 cool band so tangent aside uh <laughs> how did the bomb actually work Yes, that um, that was the question. <laughs> yes, the following settings of the machine must be discovered to decipher the German messages. Uh, you have the internal settings, so selection of rotors in use 
in the Enigma Scrambler and the position on the spindle, which is the wheel order. Mm -hmm. uh, possible wheel orders numbered 60. So you have three rotors from choice of five for Army and Air Force networks and 336 uh, for the Navy. So that's like that big, <laughs> big jump there. The Navy had their, uh, yeah. their shit together. Well, just like we were saying earlier, mm -hmm. by putting more effort into more randomization on the rotor side, you could significantly increase the uh, the durability of the system. And we know from the facts you already put out that that worked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so another internal setting uh, were the positions of the alphabet rings uh, turned over a notch in relation to the core of each rotor in use uh, called the ring settings. There are 26 possible ring settings for each rotor. Then you have the internal external settings that we needed to figure out uh, plugboard connection, which is called a stecker value. Uh, the 10 leads could be arranged in approximately 151 trillion combinations. The scrambler rotor positions at the start of enciphering the message key uh, called the indicator setting uh, up to May 1940 or thereafter, the initial positions of each rotor at the start of enciphering the message, the message key uh, from which the indicator setting could be derived. There are 17,576 possible three letter keys. Mm -hmm. So the bomb identified possible initial positions of the rotor cores and the stecker partner of a specified letter for a set of wheel orders. Manual techniques were then used to complete the decryption process. Uh, and the words of uh, Gordon Felkman, the task of the bomb was simply to reduce the assumption of wheel order and scrambler positions that required further analysis to manageable number. So the bomb itself was, you know, as we said, electromechanical device that replicated the action of several Enigma machines wired together. The, a standard German Enigma employed at any one time a set of three rotors, each of uh, which could be set to any of the 26 positions. The standard British bomb contained 36 Enigma equivalents, each with three drums wired to produce the same scrambling effect as the Enigma rotors. The bomb could run two to three jobs at the same time. Mm -hmm. Each job could, would have a menu that uh, had to be run against a number of different wheel orders. If the menu contained 12 or fewer letters, three different wheel orders could be run on one bomb. If it was more than 12 letters, then only two jobs could be actually run at the, that same time. In order to simulate Enigma rotors, each rotor drum of the bomb had two complete sets of contacts, one for input towards the reflector and the other for output from the reflector. So the, the reflected symbol could pass back through the separate set of contacts. Each drum had 104 wire brushes, which made contact with the plate onto which they were loaded. The brushes and corresponding contacts on the plate were arranged in four concentric circles of 26. The outer pair of circles, this was the input and output, were equivalent to the current in the Enigma passing in one direction through the scrambler and the inner pair equivalent to the current flowing in the opposite direction. So if I understand this right, they used a set of multiple kind of, uh, of I guess it was four different wheels to mm -hmm. simulate every possible combination of input to output. Yeah, and this thing, like if you if you if you ever seen pictures of this, it's it's massive. I don't think I've seen the picture the pictures of the bomb. Okay. Again, seen the Enigma machines in person, but not not the bomb. Like it, it reminds me of like a person standing next to like five surfer racks, <laughs> and like all the cables coming out of it and everything like that. And there were multiple of these. Yeah. So. Did I get you uh, earlier? There was still a lot of hand decryption done that yes, yeah, this yeah, just reduced the, the, the possibilities down to a manageable level? Yep, yep, exactly. Wow. 
I so it didn't even just it didn't even do the job. It, it wasn't even like plug it in here and we get it like you know oh cool here's the deciphered message. It was like run this thing and now okay here are the possibilities we can like kind of run with. And and now we only need an army rather than an infinite number of monkeys at an infinite number of typewriters. Yeah, exactly. Interconnections within the drums between the uh, two sets of input and output contacts were both identical to those of the relevant Enigma rotor. They were permanent wiring. Uh, there were permanent wirings between the inner two sets of contacts of the three input output plates. From there, the circuit continued to a plug board located in the left-hand end panel, which was wired to imitate an Enigma reflector and then back through the outer pair of contacts. At each end of the double-ended Enigma, there were sockets on the back of the machine into which 26 way cables could be plugged. The drums of the bomb were arranged with the top one of the three simulating the left-hand rotor of the Enigma scrambler, the middle one, the middle rotor, and the bottom one, the right-hand rotor. The drums were also color-coded according to which rotor they emulated. At each position of the rotors, an electric current would or wouldn't flow in each of the 26 wires, and this would be tested in the bomb's comparator unit. For the large number of positions of the test, this would lead to a logical contradiction, ruling out that setting. Mm-hmm. If the test didn't lead to a contradiction, then the machine would just stop. So this is when the operator comes in. They would record the candidate solutions by reading the position of the indicator drums and the mm-hmm. indicator unit on the bombs, right hand end panel, and then restart the run. Candidate solutions, uh, which they called stops, mm-hmm. were processed further to eliminate as many false stops as possible. Although typically there were just tons and tons of false stops before the correct ones were actually found. Mm-hmm. The candidate solutions for the set of wheel orders were subject to extensive further cryptonautical work. This progressively eliminated the false stops, built up the set of plugboard connections, and established the positions of the rotor alphabet rings. Okay, so as they so they were there was a feedback process as they successively mm-hmm. figured out messages, they were able to eliminate rotor possibilities that just were never going to occur. Exactly. Yeah. Well, well, they probably actually went the other way, and they said. Here's the ones we're testing first because these are the ones we found before. We these are the rotor combinations we found before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Go with what you know and yeah, just see if you get lucky. So it occurs to me. So you know about salting hashes, and you you put a a value in to the beginning of of a hash value so mm-hmm. that things get uh, scrambled a little bit more. There's less predictability at the end. Do you know if the Germans ever put a kind of random string at the beginning of their messages to defeat some of this frequency analysis? I don't think I, I saw anything written up on that. I wonder if that if they had done something like that, where they just put hmm. some kind of garbage in the first 10 characters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If that would have significantly changed the usefulness of the... Well, actually, the number of characters would have to probably be an entire rotation of the, of a of a rotor i would think but still it would it would really significantly change your rotor your rotor positioning yeah yeah um also like i didn't i didn't read exactly how the germans orchestrated this but i can only imagine yeah. like um you know this these were hand delivered like code books yeah okay like you know this day we will set the rotors to this and like so you just know cuz otherwise yeah you're not going to be able to decipher the message so I, I actually, now that I think about it, I think I'm probably wrong because I don't think it matter. It matters how many characters you've been through the positions of the rotors, but it doesn't matter what characters they've been because it just advances the rotors. N number of characters adva- has advances the rotors a certain amount. The, the, the three rotors 
in a in a certain relationship. It doesn't matter what characters are typed in that time. So mm. that kind of salting thing probably wouldn't have worked there nearly as well as it worked for as it works in a modern digital cryptography, where yeah. the blocks actually depend. It's not the position; it's the the subsequent pattern of the S box depends on the previous block. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I'm like you're talking about this, and I'm trying to to square that with my understanding of of digital cryptography and and how having computers changed the way that we can do these things. Yeah, this was like this was also kind of harkening back to the Operation Gunman episode we did. Like, I had to read through this <laughs> multiple times and like look at the charts and just be like, "Wait, look, so how the hell did this work?" And like, <laughs> okay, like I see this this chart. Like, wait a second, wait, I got to start over again. Like, what the hell? Yeah, it completely takes us out of the comfort zone that we, that that you and I have both built up with the stuff that we're familiar with. Yeah, yeah, like all this electromechanical uh, stuff. I'm just like, holy, like how how does this work? Like this is all magic to me. Uh, but but no magnets. Yeah, no magnets. <laughs> That's just alien technology. So eventually, uh, once they went through this entire process, the result would be tested on a Type X machine that had been modified to replicate an Enigma to see if the decryption actually produced German language. Mm -hmm. The original budget for uh, Turing's machine was uh, 100,000 pounds. I meant to like try to figure out how much of that is in like modern day monies, but uh, I kind of I kind of forgot. <laughs> Let me see if I can uh, pull that up. Okay. Uh, 1944, end of year, 2020, amount 100,000 pounds. Uh, converted amount was about four and a half million pounds. Okay. So obviously they didn't want to centralize all their bombs in one area because if the bombs got bombed, that would be bad. Yeah. <laughs> so they actually had uh, some bombs in uh, outstations established in Adstock, Gayhurst, and uh, Wavenden. They were all in the, the same area kind of as uh, Bletchley Park. And then obviously, you know, bombs were being run by the, the U.S. and like other uh, allied nations too. So... The final thing I have here is in 1994, a group led by John Harper of the uh, BCS Computer Conservation Society started a project actually to build a replica of the bomb. Uh, they did just a ton of detailed research and it actually took them 13 years of effort to rebuild this thing. And uh, the replica is actually put on display in Bletchley Park Museum, so you can see it now. But it's it's crazy to me that it took them 13 years yeah. to to rebuild this this thing that had already been built. Yes, like, that's all I got. Other than um, you know, it's also a shame what happened to Alan. Like, yeah, the the way he was treated. Yes. Um, for anybody who doesn't know, um, he was gay and or probably gay. He might have been ace uh, asexual, but. Uh, that much detail we don't really have, but um, he was charged with being gay. And the only way that they wouldn't imprison him is if he was willing to take chemical castration. Yeah. And that's not good for you, even if it weren't cruel. Yeah, exactly. And it's just like, you know, this guy that basically saved countless lives and helped to end this war four years early, you know, to have that done to him, it's just kind of, well, outrageous for the science fiction or 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 um, urban fantasy fans out there. There's some reference to Alan Turing in the Laundry Files by Charles Strauss, um, where 
they take a different take on what Alan Turing's contribution was within that universe for anybody that's uh that's interested. I'm I'm a big fan of the series, so uh, I encourage people to uh to take a look and see if they enjoy it. Oh, and the the name of the movie is The Imitation Game. That's the one with Benedict Cumberbatch. Yeah, I kept thinking a beautiful mind is like, no, that's a different guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, not that any, the, that there isn't a kind of a lineage there. Um, mm-hmm. Immediately after all of this happened, a lot of that foundational computer work in America was done by guys like John Nash and, and John von Neumann. And in a lot of ways, they were kind of the direct successors to what happened at Bletchley Park and the American equivalents. Mm-hmm. There was one story that I've heard and may very well be apocryphal, or maybe you didn't run, run across it, but that part of the what made it possible for, for some of the initial decryptions was that the Germans weren't, or at least probably the, 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 um, the Luftwaffe, from what you were saying, weren't very good about changing the initial rotor settings, that, the, that they would use HLI or TER. Mm. as the initial rotor settings i don't know if that's apocryphal or not but that was one of the one of the stories that that was floated around really yeah i didn't i didn't run across that but i mean yeah i mean i, I could see that like you know they were obviously not that great of and like you know obviously the navy had it like yeah down from everything i read whereas yeah well and the thing is that that um just prior to the war the japanese uh encryption their diplomatic cipher was called purple and the u.s um navy uh, signals intelligence, and I don't remember the exact name for it. They had broken. They had purple was broken prior to the war even starting. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, mm. There's some other details of that and I, that I got from a history of the CIA that I don't recall because there was a whole story about Wild Bill Donovan and trying to get access to all of the military signals intelligence. Yeah, yeah. Message traffic and him <laughs> not actually succeeding because the military was like. Dude, your wild bill is maybe downplaying how crazy you are. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. But yeah, that's all I have for uh, Bletch the Park. Awesome. Maybe once things open up, we, we can maybe take a trip over to the UK and, and see if we can go to the Bletchley Museum. Yeah, I'm vaccinated. I'm ready to get on a plane and go somewhere. Excellent. Recording notes can be found at www.hackingthegibson.online. Follow Hack the Gibbs 1 on Twitter to get notified of new recordings. Support the continued observation of Hacking the Gibson on Patreon.